What's up, my marketing people? Today on the Mind Your Marketing Podcast, I am sitting with Simon Garrity. Simon is the CMO at Kate Somerville Skincare. He's also worked for Johnson & Johnson, Neutrogena, and helped scale Gordon Rush, a men's footwear brand, up to $20 million in annual revenue. We get into a really interesting talk about keeping a growth mindset, utilizing influencers and where he sees that going, and some of the biggest learning he had coming out of really marketing through 2008 and the financial crisis, through now and COVID and, and what he's learned back then and how he's applying it. Really, really interesting. So uh, stay tuned for this one. But before we get into that, as always, this episode is brought to you by Cave Social. Cave Social is a marketing agency based out of Los Angeles. If you need help with your social media content, call Cave Social or visit their website. Head over to www.cavesocial.com. All right, everyone, sit back, enjoy, and I'll catch you after the episode. Welcome to the show. Today, I am sitting with Simon Garrity. He has worked with bootstrap companies, building them up like Gordon Rush. He spent time with Johnson & Johnson, working with brands like Neutrogena. And most recently, right now, he is the CMO of the beauty brand under Kate Somerville. Simon, welcome to the show. Oh, great. Glad to be here. That was a you know brief 20-word intro but let us in on a little more of your story, kind of your career marketing to date and what brought you to where you're at. Sure, sure. Yeah, so I didn't know what I wanted to do coming out of college. So I was a, an English literature undergrad. I'm originally from Ireland. I met my now wife when I was on a summer visa and ended up uh, coming to the US without a plan, which ultimately led me to uh, joining a startup called Gordon Rush. So it was in San Diego, a luxury men's footwear brand leather goods uh, manufactured out of Italy and had just been started by two brothers and one was a designer, one was a sales guy and they were kind of looking for someone to be the do everything else person. So that was my first kind of real job and that was a real amazing adventure. So we went from startup, we grew to 20 million, we sold Nordstrom, Saks, Bloomingdale's nationally and moved from footwear into expanding into some other categories, um, built up some other brands there. So it was like this really rapid journey where I was kind of later figured out that I was both the hub and the wheel. So when I later found out that marketers were the hub of the wheel, I realized uh, back then I was doing it all. I was technically the chief operating officer, but kind of touched everything. And it was an amazing journey. We grew rapidly, really learned how to sort of build something from nothing. Also, how would no leverage? How do you convince people to kind of believe in you or believe in a brand? So it was an amazing adventure. I think we hit 2008, fall 2008, we were expanding into our letter goods and outerwear collection, which was ominous timing to try to take on that expansion. And so we went through some shaky times for six to nine months. And I think that's where really the, the deeper learning began. And that's where you really realize that um, you learn a lot more when you're struggling than when you're winning. And so I think that was really important for me to take sort of a step back at what I'd learned to date and kind of identify where there might be gaps or for where I wanted to go in the longer term. So we took the business, got it through that. As we came out the other side, streamlined the business and realized that where our strengths were, were really in sales, marketing, and design, and maybe not in some of the other elements. But during the process, I was like, you know, I'm from another country. People don't always know my college. They don't always know my background. I work for a small footwear brand. I'd like to have a sort of a launching pad to something bigger and sort of 
learn more. So decided to do my MBA, was lucky to get into UCLA and they covered most of the costs for me and then ended up quickly finding myself in a conversation with some people from the Neutrogena brand that turned into, do you want to come and do an internship in brand management? Didn't really know what brand management was, but as I dug in more, I realized I'd been doing a lot more of that than I had thought. And so I kind of went from being chief operating officer to summer intern quite rapidly, which was humbling, but also really important to sort of see the longer term. Went to Neutrogena full-time as part of the brand, as part of the Johnson Johnson skincare team. And I was there for seven years. Really allowed myself to sort of build on those entrepreneurial skills. I think people who knew me were like, you won't stay there more than a year. But again, I was thinking more longer term. uh, And I found that over the course of time, there was no better place for developing sort of general management skills And to get the sort of experience of running campaigns and media for a brand as big as Neutrogena was phenomenal to really understand sort of the innovation cycles. And then especially the way they sort of teach leadership and management and sort of how you become a much more diverse thinker and uh, motivating leader. So there, there was a lot of real strong pieces to build up there and then also some strong pieces of career. So working from, I guess, being ABM up to director and going through those different phases and working on Neutrogena brand initially, and then getting the opportunity to take on the Clean and Clear brand was a really good experience too. It was was sort of right at that moment where I was like, what else have I got to learn here? And the Clean and Clear brand had been struggling. And so they were looking for someone who could look at it with fresh eyes and really sort of rebuild it and help it get momentum back. And that, I think, was a, a really critical experience because Ultimately, I think that was one of those things that helped me bridge to where I am now because it helped close the gaps. After that, I got to work sort of globally working on beauty tech. So sort of what does the beauty of the future of beauty look like? So obviously things from the light therapy mask that we launched, but also personalized masks, um, really looking to sort of bringing personalization into skincare and beauty and where that was going. And again, learning a ton, getting a global perspective, but I always had this itching where or this itch where essentially I'd been in the startup world and now I was getting this experience as this sort of large CPG. And I was looking for where's that opportunity where I can take both of those experiences and merge them and sort of take a smaller established brand and help it to scale. So I was looking after those opportunities and that's when the opportunity came up at Kate Somerville. And after speaking to some people and digging in, I found that it was exactly a brand exactly set up for me to sort of have that experience and to really contribute and make a difference. And so that's what brought me to Kate Somerville. And that was uh, August of last year. So I guess 10 months ago. Wow. That's a super interesting journey. And uh, we've seen that a couple of times on the show where guests say, okay, I did the startup thing. And then I went, you know, to the bigger corporation. And then I felt like I needed an itch that wasn't scratched and then finding themselves in those, you know, smaller companies, maybe under 50 employees, under 100 employees, under 200 employees. Very, very interesting. Well, I got a couple of questions out of that file sure. alone. One, you know, 2008, we financial crisis. You said during that time, you really learned a lot of those, you know, your back was up against the wall. So you had two choices, really fight out of the corner or fold like a $3 chair. So those things that you took fighting out of the corner, getting scrappy, building up the company. Is there anything specifically that you do today with Kate Somerville that really was founded, you know, in that time in 2008? Yeah, I, I feel like, and I've noticed it a lot, um, especially as, as we're in this sort of COVID space now, and there's a lot of 
panic. There's a lot of people who, who weren't working in 2008 and everything's new for them. I feel like the experience of having gone through that, and especially having gone through that where you're worried about how do you make payroll because you're directly responsible for each person's sort of livelihood, I think that gives a lot of perspective that probably I got earlier in my career than normal. So that's something that helps a lot now is to, is to have that perspective to sort of take the shorter term actions you need to, but not lose the longer term perspective. And then the other thing I think really back with Gordon Rush, it was really that moment where realizing that integrity and truth and honesty are things that you have to build around. When you have cash flow challenges, when you are sort of getting more orders than you can finance, and you're in that space, when you have to call suppliers and ask them for help, I didn't really know how to do that at the time. And I think I just followed my stomach. So how did it feel inside? And I found that that was a good guide. And, and I think it was very sort of reassuring as it came to decisions later and how you treat people and how you speak. If you don't have integrity, if you don't use honesty, if you don't be truthful, even if it's sometimes tough news, then you're going to end up in a space where, where you can't really tell the forest from the trees. And that's not a place you want a leader to be in on a business. Um, so I think those are sort of the takeaways that I, I think to me were most important, um, even more so than the how did we get through week A and week B. It's just much more the or sort of the life lessons or career lessons from it. Totally. And like you said, your integrity, right? Your reputation is going to last longer than the crisis. So, and it was established beforehand. So, you know, what does that look like coming out of that? And, and can people follow that, that leadership? And what is that? So that's uh, very powerful. Two, I got a question for you. So you grew up in Ireland. Mm -hmm. I grew up in Canada and I moved to the U.S. six years ago. But one thing that took me a little bit to get used to was really learning the U.S. culture and market. Did you find uh, that there was a learning curve with, you know, like I don't call it culture shock. I just call it culture adjustment moving to the U.S. from another country. But it definitely from a marketing perspective, there are subtleties. Did you see those right away? When you came over or did you hit the ground running? Well, I guess I didn't see myself as a marketer. I didn't have that lens on when I was in Ireland. Then I thought I was going to be writing books for a living or maybe not for a living, but I thought that's that's more where my mental space was. But I guess so I was more observing the differences in people or the nuances where, you know, 80% of things are the same. And on the surface, they seem completely the same. But then there's sort of historical and social histories and legacies and elements that aren't necessarily clear when you first arrive. So I was more observing it that way and sort of trying to understand just some of the subtleties. And, and I think then by the time I kind of went into Gordon Rush and then kind of came out of that, I understood, I guess, America and Americans much better. And therefore, as I grew as a marketer, I feel like I grew up as an American marketer, if that makes sense. So it was more about the timing of the transition because coming straight from sort of undergrad and not having thought about marketing or business up to that point, uh, I didn't have a lot of pre-established notions. So it was more for me to to understand how do I culturally adjust and understand? And I think from there, that gave me a good starting point. No, yeah, that makes uh, makes complete sense. You spoke a lot about when you were in Neutrogena that there was a lot of you know, tools and that you could really learn a lot. And you ended up, you know, like you said, staying there for longer than your friends predicted. What do you do today to keep learning and, and keep fresh when it comes to marketing? Are there any particular resources or people that you follow? I guess I try to ensure our team has a lot of people who disagree with me, for starters. <laughs> so, <laughs> like I, for instance, like there's only 
so much sort of that I will ever know about the intricacies of sort of influencer relationships, but I have someone on my team who knows that better than me and will push me to learn and push me to sort of take an interest level even deeper than I maybe have the time to have. Um, So that's one of the main things to sort of challenge. I do, there's a guy from the UK who I think it's called Brand Jim, who writes sort of a blog every week that I still find interesting because it's almost like the whole point of it is not to get caught up into trends and to focus on the core and to focus on the principles that sort of are ever present. So I find that helpful because day to day, there's so much chasing of the trend or follow what's coming new or like everybody run to TikTok, just like you ran to Snapchat, just like something else. And maybe one of them will be Instagram and one of them will be Snapchat and you don't know. So you have to keep running and exploring, but it's good to have a resource that kind of reminds you, well, step back, think about the principles, think about what's been true about human behavior for 10 years, 20 years, 30 years, that will probably still be true as you, and bring that context to some more of the trends. And obviously I read everything from sort of ad week to sort of industry stuff like WWD and beauty fashion and glossy and stuff like that. So so I, I stay up to speed, but sometimes I think it's it's the stuff that reminds me not to get caught up in the noise that is actually, it's a, it's a little refreshing. I don't know, it's like mental yoga or something when it comes to marketing. <laughs> It's very powerful. It's something I've told people before, and you know, we're an agency of clients, and I always say, we don't need to chase a narrative. We don't need to chase that. We need to create our own story and stick to it. And that these platforms just enable us a vehicle to really, you know, tell the story. But like, you know, you're saying everyone rushing to TikTok, and it's like, okay, being on TikTok alone is not a strategy, right? Where does it come down? <laughs> Where does it actually tie back to the core principles of what the company's about? Now, Correct. I'm not saying TikTok may not be the answer. It's just why are you going there is, is a key question to ask, kind of to yep, your point. Yep, totally. Now, with the beauty industry in particular, I feel like you guys were first movers when it came to influencer marketing and really the wide use of influencers. One of the things, well, one, I guess I would ask, where do you see influencer marketing going? Do you see that being a, a major part of the mix, particularly we'll, we'll stick with in beauty and, you know, for everyone who loves influencer marketing, I love it too, but it's spokespeople. We've just got spokespeople. We had them in the seventies and eighties. Now they just are on Instagram instead of a commercial, but where do you see, I guess that industry as a whole going? Do you think more brands are going to move into influencer marketing and really look to partner with those influencers? I think it's part of the marketing mix, right? It'll evolve. I think how you work is very different. I think how we work now as a small company without big budgets or a smaller company without as big a budget as we had at sort of J&J is is very different. There's less people in between. It's more about direct relationships. In our case, like we have a clinic as a physical location when it's open again, but that's that having that in in Hollywood as as a place to sort of bring people and let them experience the brand helps build a more authentic connection than just trying to pay people. And so we're trying to find how do we distinctly connect our brand to an influencer versus how do we just kind of get in line and see who's got the biggest check and then use that as, as a way of trying to break through? Because I think the authenticity element is is really important. And I think it was similar principle like at Neutrogena, but there were more sort of agencies in between that, that sort of managed some of that stuff. I think in the end, it's influencers are successful probably because there's an element of connectivity. And I think how that evolves as technology evolves and society evolves will determine where we end up. 
think anybody who's been like involved in social in the last few months can just say like, where will it go next? And so it's just, again, sort of tracking that. But I think it, it fundamentally comes down to sort of connectivity and maintaining some level of authenticity, even knowing that you're talking about that influencer space. The other thing that I, I feel like hopefully will become more important, and I feel like I see the signs already, is is the rise of experts. So I think you kind of had anyone with their phone could become an influencer, but where's that line between influence and expertise? And some of the influencers are experts and will they become more and more valuable over time? So, so how much of it is driven by expertise and knowledge and how much of it is driven by other elements? I think that dynamic could shift over time. But again, I'm just sort of, sort of seeing potential paths. Uh, it's hard to know exactly where it will go. I think you're right on when it comes to the the shifting towards us wanting expertise. And I think it speaks to the larger scale when we say why Elon Musk is a celebrity and why people care about, you know, tech CEOs today or really physicists or anything is because I think consumers are a lot, everyone's a lot smarter than, you know, companies have given them credit for. And we, we have this tool now with YouTube and through blogs, we can go in and really find the exact thing we need in beauty for our certain complexion, for instance. And you look at like what Emily Weiss has done with Glossier and Into the Gloss, for instance, it's a great resource and a great place. So you're able to, like you said, if you can create a hub or with your actual clinic, people can come in and they can experience it. But the whole time they're in a clinic where they're talking and engaging with experts, right? And that becomes so powerful, even in the offline world. It's that we want to take that advice and be part of that experience. So that is uh, very, very powerful. Now, when it comes to you know your career, I want to talk a little bit about a campaign or something that you launched in the past. It could be at Gordon Rush, Kate Somerville, it could be something you just did or something 10 years ago. Something that you launched and didn't really give you the KPIs that you expected but turned out to be invaluable in other ways. Is there any moment like that that you could go back to? Most of them probably in some way. <laughs> I, think, I think you always learn something differently than you expect. I think one thing that I thought, one thing that I, I guess, I'll give two examples, one at Neutrogena and one at, one at Clean and Clear. I think at Neutrogena, when we launched into light therapy with the light therapy acne mask, it was completely different than anything the brand had ever done, ever done before. And suddenly you're taking this, technology and you're kind of first to market bringing it to mass, but you also have convinced consumers that light is an actual ingredient and it can have efficacy on the face and on your acne, but it looks a little strange. And so we, we had this whole debate of, of how, how we go forward with that. And, and fundamentally, we were like, you know what? We embrace the weird. We, we just make it part of it and we embrace the social potential of what it would look like. I think that was an amazing campaign. The team that worked on that did such a great job and it was in some ways, sort of starting with a blank page, because how you launched that or brought that to life, who you partnered with was completely different in, in many ways than an acne cleanser or a moisturizer or an anti-aging product that in, in, in a typical format. So that was really interesting. I think knowing how big or how successful it would be is almost an impossibility. Um, and so I think what was most impactful from that was everybody who worked at it developed immensely as marketers going through that struggle of how to take something complex and communicate it simply. And those who are working on the business 
side of it developed phenomenally when it came to just understanding again how do you plan or predict for the future and then how do you pivot as you see how it evolves i think the other thing is that it also brought something new to the equity sort of a future looking perspective that that had a big impact so i think that was one where you did we didn't know where it was going to go but we knew the expectations were high and i think looking back on it i think the learning for people and the development of the equity within the brand were the real benefits the other one i guess with clean and clear was how do you take this brand that's super established in the acne market and with teens take a brand where it's very clear the products are relevant to teens but where the brand had sort of lost its connectivity to teens it was it was still talking to teens like it was the 90s in some ways and how do you bring authenticity how do you anchor that in gen z again the sort of blank slate of like knowing the outcome is we need to drive share growth and knowing that the playbook is not the one that we used before i think there's that sense similar to light therapy of like you're burning the boats and you're here and you've got to go build it and again i think the same impact a team that worked on that all developed in a great way and and we took at the time what were big risks or changes when it came to how we worked with the brand how we brought it to life who we partnered with we fundamentally handed over the cameras and the microphones to teens and said this is clean and clear here's our products you record your thoughts and made that the core of the campaign because they brought an element of sort of newness and freshness and their experience of the brands and the products and the words they used you you couldn't get from market research and you couldn't get from copywriters anywhere and so all of those sort of firsts that we established there i think developed a team developed the brand developed the thinking and a mindset that i think is sort of percolated into a lot of other brands at that company since then so i think both of those are examples where not knowing where it was going to go but then sort of seeing the after effect and it's like yeah the business results were good but what was most rewarding is like look at how that person developed look at what they learned look at this thing we tried that was a disaster and look at this thing that we tried that was huge success and i think those were where it became more rewarding i think that answers your question but it may have been slightly a, a tangent as i got going no it's good it's good and it kind of comes back to what you said at the start of this where really growth and authenticity right whether you're being a manager and you have to be authentic to your team in a tough time or understanding as a marketer that hey our consumers if we just give them product and say hey talk about this and like you said it's unscripted and it's raw but it's authentic and, and that's what we can connect with. And we see this. It's a reason that things like TikTok have taken off because these platforms provide creators, influencers, avenues where they can go and create something and it, it comes across. It, it's more authentic than a perfectly scripted commercial. And then the second part, really the growth, which is ultimately something that gets overlooked is that that development and growth. And because it's it's hard to quantify, but when you've gone through and had a tough campaign and had to say, how do we communicate this? And how do we get across this new cool technology like light therapy, right? That looks weird. How do we get this across? But then you go through that and you have that big win. Not only is it a giant morale boost for the team, but it's something that I think trains those muscles for the team. So the next time they get presented with the next quirky thing that maybe the world hasn't seen yet, it's okay. I've done this thought experiment before. I've done this before. I have some self-confidence in the ability. So I think it's spot on when it comes to, to those two stories and how they can relate to people, specifically marketers and what they're doing forward. With your team right now, is there anything that's 
measurable or systematized or you have a process for to help your team grow? Education, training, anything like that? We are pretty new team. So we've expanded dramatically. I would say by the time we end the year, we'll be 70% a new team. True expansion, bringing in a lot of roles that didn't exist before. So we are sort of learning every day. I think we, we do formal trainings, but honestly, to sort of the examples I gave a second ago, most of it is get into ditches and figure it out, like get in there and dig and sort of work together. And I think it's it's more about getting people who've got those unique experiences, bringing them together and sort of fostering that collaborative culture. And it sounds a little cliche, but doing that with intent. So it's almost like you trust in their skills of the team. You try to inspire the team to where to go. And then you sort of press and kind of like let them all do their best work and keep encouraging them to do their best work. So we measure it. Obviously, we're, we're tracking growth and awareness. We're tracking all of our sort of turnarounds and POS, our percent growth and DTC. Like we're tracking all the metrics in terms of the people. I guess there's a little bit of, of sort of what I learned at J&J. It's, it's, we're sort of tracking the development in both the what and also the how. So what are people doing? But then how are they doing it? And I think that was a great question that was asked always at J&J that I've sort of brought with me. And the simple version is like, you have that person who throws up great results, but no one likes. But I think it's much more... It's much deeper than that when you keep asking the question. And so with the team, it's, okay, so maybe we didn't get the result we wanted, but how did we go about approaching it and have that dialogue? And what did we learn from the way we approach it this time and how will we change it next time? So I guess a lot of it is by nature of this, our size and our sort of growth rate. It's build as you go, learn as you go, but sort of have those conversations about, okay, what did we deliver? How did we do it? How would we do it differently the next time? And then constantly doing that without it ever becoming negative. It's it's much more of a sort of growth and improvement mentality. And I think that takes some time to establish. When I first came there, I think everyone was afraid to talk the first time that we sort of asked those questions. But as I sort of brought in, sort of expanded a team, as people got used to it, they, they realized that, oh, wait, no, he actually really does want to know <laughs> how we did it and how we could do it differently next time. And, he actually, and so I think building around that is, is more how we're building the team. There's a ton of sort of formal training, although we do have some resourcing where we like we'll get access to everyone that I did at J&J in terms of like Google, TikTok, like we'll meet with their teams, we'll go through training sessions, we'll talk to the tribe dynamics of the world. Like we have all the industry resourcing, but we don't do sort of a ton of uh, formal how to be a marketer or any of that sort of education. It's more like get in and do it live and let's let's work on it together. I love it. You get the hands dirty. It's a, the quickest way to learn. And then I also, you said a couple of things there that I think are huge that listeners can take back to you know their teams and their companies. Get feedback from your team and iterate quickly. And if you have those continual iterations and then you're analyzing, okay, what worked and what didn't, but also like you said, how did it not work or how did it work and, and where can we improve or where can we try something new um, and add a new tool to the toolkit? I think that's so important for a company of any size, really, to look at, you know, what is that process when we go through it and do a campaign and how can things be changed? Simon, before I let you go, tell everyone where they can find you online or, or learn more about the projects you're working on. You can check out Kate Somerville in general, Instagram and the website and stuff like that. I guess for me, I'm on LinkedIn. I'm not, I'm more of a social media observer than a participant. I follow everything. I track it, but I kind of let the brand and the teams do the talking more than try to be out there talking myself as much as possible. So I would just say, just like, look at the work. 
Awesome. I will link all of that below so you guys can go check out all the work that Simon and his team are doing at Kate Somerville. Until next time, everyone, take care. Um.